Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. The, uh, this platform, Robert Nee Ade Clerk. He is lawyer and author. Joining us via Zoom, Bobby Banson. He's a lawyer, uh, teaches the law, Justice Abdullahi. He is lawyer and lecturer at UPSA Law School and the plaintiff in this matter, Osman Al-Hassan. He's also a lawyer who has written uh, copiously to criticize the judgment. Later, we'll have others uh, joining us, including uh, Mr. John Ewa, Chief Executive Officer, Ghana Association of uh, Bankers, or the banks, Dr. Prisla Chumisi Bafour, Senior Lecturer, Department of Economics, University of Ghana, and Mildred Aziz, businesswoman, to look at how you can survive this economy, very harsh economy, and what should the managers of the economy do, even as they meet now, to take some decisions. Now, um, let's uh, go to the Supreme Court's matter. As you know, that there have been criticisms that the judgment is perverse and problematic. There have been uh, growing, you know, criticisms, some of them uh, below the bar, if you want. Uh, <clears throat> and there are articles that are being authored, including one by some by even non-lawyers like Dr. Atta Kennedy uh, expressing concern about the unanimous decision because he feels that whilst Ghanaians are divided, split on the decision, the Supreme Court cannot be so unanimous because they live among us, they live with us, they are part of us. So what is it that leads them to be unanimous when Ghanaians are divided? Um, you've heard President Akofuado, you've heard President Mahama, you've heard the Speaker of Parliament, you've heard Professor Kweku Azza and Professor H. Kwesi Prempe, two friends who don't really disagree today disagreeing. We are looking at the potential problems that the judgment may bring. How can it be implemented in just one week? After the judgment, the minority has used it to hold government business to ransom, blocked proceedings in the house five times, loans that need to be worked at to benefit the country have been stopped because they use the judgment. A judgment they criticized. <laughs> anyway, so <clears throat> let me start with... Uh, Abdullahi, Justice Abdullahi. Thank you very much for joining us, Justice Abdullahi. Yeah, thank you so much um, for being part of this program. I, Great. I, I am indeed elated to be here, and I consider this as possibly my last program on this subject matter because I have been really heavily um, exhausted by the media for the past two weeks. Mm. And so I consider this as the first, possibly the last program that I'll be doing yeah. going forward. And so 
There, there are too many young people who are giving up uh, being out there outspoken and contributing to uh, the discourse for good governance and national development. I think it doesn't help this country if uh, too many of us begin to toe that line. I'm guilty. I've stopped, you know, being on, speaking on issues. The media calls me and I just simply tell them I'm not speaking. That's not um, good. Samson, in, in my case, you may, have, you may understand, particularly because of the, the tagging and the subtle insults and, and the potential threats that it comes with. And um, if you notice, during the course, I think yesterday and Thursday, um, there were rumors that I had snubbed President Mahama and had even insulted him and disrespected him. In, and some of, the, some of these made front pages um, of some of the newspapers, and something that is completely untrue. Um, um, and so it, it's, it's quite difficult in such a circumstances to, to continuously uh, be on air, and, uh, because you never know um, the next line of um, mischief that would come because of this. But, but, but did, you say, did you say or you did not that uh, President Mahama cannot give you advice on law? Um, Samson, um, you've always known me. I'll never disrespect President Mahama. And so I'll never use any derogatory comment on him, and not under any circumstances. I mean, you've always known me, prior from, I mean, the years back, as far back, I'm sure, as 2003. I have never been disrespectful of anyone. And so I wouldn't even want to justify it by explaining it. And it would probably just make matters worse. And so I, I, if President Mama is online or whoever is watching, I'd rather render an unqualified apology to him because I, he's a person that I, I respect so much. That, um, he's been a leader of this country. What are you apologizing for? He's not a lawyer. You spoke the law. And if he's seeking to give you some advice on law and you say he's not qualified to give you advice on law, what sin have you committed? That, that is not the apology I'm rendering. The apology I'm rendering is the mischief that has been um, put on the, the comment that I made, that I, I, I snubbed him, insulted him, disrespected him. That is what I'm apologizing for. Okay. As for the issue of whether or not he's a lawyer, I think it's, it's a matter of fact. Mm. Um, um, and that does not amount to an insult. Mm. And so I wouldn't apologize on that. Yes. How, however, however, that young people must communicate with respect to the elders. Absolutely the point, without having to um, Thank you. Um, um, disrespect anyone. So, Justice, now let me begin with you on this note that for now, I'm going to blame you. You are responsible for what is happening in Parliament now. Maybe by now, uh, the five attempts by the NPP to have this, uh, it's a, a European, I'll look for it again and give the correct uh, description of uh, what it is that they have been seeking to pass, to help, you know, the economy. And it has been shut down and other issues too have been shut down five times using this judgment. You have caused this. Admitted, um, I, I went into this with that single objective as a patriot to bring all of us together um, and be able to forge ahead as nationals with a single objective of developing this country and protecting the welfare of our people uh, and indeed advancing safety. Um, and indeed, possibly the next objective was to ensure that we get that kind of judgment that all of us would embrace without having to target as a political judgment, as we've always done in this country. Um, invariably, whatever judgment that would have been obtained if an MPP-sponsored candidate 
um, plaintiff or an NDC sponsor um, plaintiff had gone to the court, um, most likely would have had that kind of judgment that however good it might be, people will still shoot it down on the basis that it is colored and tainted with politics. And, and for me, this was possibly one of the, the salient objectives for going to the Supreme Court, that because I was not, I'm not linked to any of these political parties, I do not hold any political party card. Um, I am not a member of any of these political parties. I felt um, deeply that, um, particularly also being a lawyer, if I appear before the Supreme Court and obtain a judgment, however unfavorable that judgment might be to myself as a person or to whoever um, who be um, affected thereby. And indeed, um, having said that, I need to point out that indeed all of us are affected equally by this judgment, mm. whether you consider it as a lose or you consider it as a win. Okay. You are affected equally thereby. Um, and because really it's a judgment that as you rightly pointed out, NDC and MPP will all use it going forward um, because it becomes a guiding principle for all of us. And so all of us are equally affected. It's not really a loss or a win for justice such a lie. Do you feel personally hurt? And I'm asking from a lawyer's perspective. In this case, you went as a plaintiff. As a lawyer, I go to court, I put my best foot forward, uh, do the best I can for my clients, and that's where it has to end. You don't go to court always seeking to win because that's not how it, should, it ought to be. Um, so do you feel personally hurt that you wanted the court to say that deputy speakers cannot preside and vote to take decisions and the court disagrees with you? Um, I'm not hurt. I, I, however, disagree with that position um, because I did feel um, and strongly still feel safe that um, if you check our constitutional history, that office, the, the speaker's office, and in that, when I say speaker, including his deputies, has been an office that has been tacked with neutrality and impartiality. And this is what I have been saying from day one, in fact, right from the moment that the judgment was delivered. Now, um, that portion of it I disagree because I, I felt strongly that it is the best way that we have the best from Parliament. If you have a, a speaker tainted with politics or who is um, seen to be uh, politically aligned, you are likely to have a decision that would um, invariably favor a political party rather than um, advance the national interest. Um, um, and, and, and that way you do not get the best out of it, obviously. Right. Um, so, so to that extent, indeed, I wasn't happy that the Supreme Court saw the line that they did because I was hoping that the Supreme Court would not only look at the present circumstances but also consider future um, occurrences. Right. Um, so really, I, I, the I will, is supposed to be a great document. Right. I'll return to you. I'll return to you so that we can get a sneak peek into because we've heard you in the media say that you are looking at the possibility of a review and that you've been trying uh, to draft some things to see. Let's see where you have gotten to and whether it looks, you know, good. At least uh, a few of the points that uh, may convince the, the public that it's worth going back when a unanimous decision has been taken. As far as the public is concerned, because it's a unanimous, <laughs> there's no point wasting your time going back. But we as lawyers know that that is not what it ought to be. It can be unanimous today, and on review, some of them may change their mind because of some things that are brought up later. Bobby Banson, thank you very much for joining us. Um, uh, do you, you very much for do you, do, you, do you still teach the law at the law school? Yes, uh, civil procedure. Great, great, great. Now, what will you say first off about 
how the judgment is presently being used. And among others, it has been used uh, to block uh, governments uh, from, you know, getting approval uh, for a 20 million euro German Development Bank Renewable Energy Agreement. They cited lack of quorum. You hear the minority. Anytime they want to start the business, they get up. And now they have proclaimed that with exception of prayers, everything will go by votes. Um, good, good morning, Samson, and thanks for, for having me. Um, uh, before I address the, um, your, your question, I would want to use this opportunity to encourage my friend, uh, Justice. I mean, um, I agree and I associate myself with your admonition to him that uh, in, his, in his practice as a lawyer, I'm sure he would have come across uh, clients who are as difficult as the media <laughs> see claims and have bastardized him for things he has even not done. I mean, this is not the first case he's been that is in the public. Some have been in the public and it's been wrongly misrepresented. But uh, for the sake of posterity, uh, it's not all of us that can wear that crown. So if his neck is strong enough to wear that crown, some of us will be behind to continue to push it. And uh, it goes further to, 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 for the call that there may be perhaps a time for a public fund to be set up to sponsor some of these things so that people like Justice will not only be committing his time, because he's a, a professional, he's a lecturer as well, his financial resources, and at the, at the end of the day, be bastardized by the media. But if there are civil societies that will commit time and fund and resources to some of these things, then it will depersonalize it so that people will not see that, oh, it's justice who have sat somewhere. So I think something you made this call some time ago. Maybe we should push that agenda and get these civil societies that speak about some of these things to commit resources into a fund so that persons that feel strongly about these constitutional matters that have a far-reaching event on our democracy, mm -hmm. on our corporate governance events and our society as a whole will be sponsored not in their personal capacity right. but of the group so that yeah. it will be personalized. Okay. Now, so now, now, now just, just hold on briefly for me there because this is a very interesting point and I, I understand Osman just joined us. Osman, what do you think about this? Because these litigations that individual Ghanaians take are not for their private personal interest. They benefit all of us. A good example, Martin Pebble went to the court a number of times and said there ought not, to, there ought not be a crime labeled as non-bailable. He's been successful. Because of that, every offense is subject to amenable to bail. Because of him, if you get arrested, you get a surety. And the surety, you know, you, the, you, the person runs away. The surety is not arrested and put in jail. What do you say about this uh, idea about a fund for uh, constitutional public litigation? Well, that's it's a great idea because there are so many there are so many things that need to be clarified in the constitution, um, and you see, it, it, it takes courage for someone to enforce a constitution because it's a national document, and where you go is the highest court of the land. And so if there is a, if we need clarity, and you see, constitution, the way we implement constitution determines the, the national security as well. If you look back in history, you see, if we joke with a constitution, things can happen. And so if someone undertakes to enforce a constitution or to bring clarity to the path 
the constitution has charged for us. I think it should be commented, and I think any support for it is thank, great. Thank you very much. Let me get uh, let me let me get uh, Robert's uh, view on this. What do you say about that? Um, you hear people, uh, who, uh, particularly those who are very critical and those who are in politics and are engaged in propaganda. You say one thing, they say, go to court. If you uh, go to court, <laughs> it's money. It is. It definitely is, but I think that we should go to court whenever we can. Um, it's the nature of the game. It is a, it is a system that we have uh, all agreed to play by. And so I believe that we should, we should go to court. And I really want to commend uh, Alaji for going to court. In the end, what he wanted, he didn't get. But he still got us to get some clarity, clarity with respect to a certain position. Mm. I do not think that he should bow out at this time or be disturbed by people commenting or people labeling him or calling him whatever. Mm. That's the name of the game. I mean, look at all the history of Ghana. You can go back as far as wherever to look at our constitutional challenges, etc., and all of that. These are people who have taken bold steps to challenge things which they did not agree with, and it will not end now. On the specific point of getting a group uh, to fund such projects, trust me, it sounds like a good idea, but it will be a difficult one to implement. Mm. I say so because, look, we're in a society where every group is labeled. Hmm. Every group is labeled. Some group, uh, the most recent example would be Occupy Ghana. If I were to ask people ordinarily, what do you think Occupy Ghana supports in this country? They would give you a, a political party, correct or wrong. So it depends on who comes together. And are we likely to get people of the two leading political uh, parties in this country coming together to form that? For which reason we Belief of political bias. It, can be, it, could, it could be a fund in the justice system, the judiciary, so that once you file the process, yes. then you are refunded for your expense. Uh, what you would have normally charged uh, for, from a client, at least you can get, say, about a quarter or half of it. So are you addressing just the cost? Are you addressing just the cost or are you addressing the political clouding? and the coloration that comes with the suggestion bobby's suggestion yeah. is about the cost okay to fund the people because justice is contemplating a review right and you can imagine the time he sat to absolutely spend. Mm. i i th that wouldn't be a bad thing to do okay as a matter of fact i mean if you're talking just about the cost of it and you want the, the to do it but i don't see it happening okay i don't see it happening again because if you say the state should fund actions against itself um we know that the state is the state and it's not necessarily the political party, in theory. In practice, we know who is the defender of the state, the party in power at any given point in time. I'm much of enough of a reality. So it should be a public fund. So it, public fund something, is, uh, somebody has to initiate it. All right. The only time I see it happening is when a party is about to exit office. <laughs> then they are happy maybe in the last two months. So Bobby, I get back to you on how this judgment has been used at least in one week. The minority says, except for prayers, everything will be put to a vote. And when it comes to a vote, they will need to determine quorum. Yes, um, it, it wasn't to, not to be expected, or it's not surprising. They had made those suggestions as soon as the judgment was, was passed, that they were going to follow it to the latter. And to the extent that what they are asking for is in line with the Constitution, you cannot fault them. And I, I watched one of the videos where, um, when it came to, I think, discussing an amendment to the criminal law or something like that, they didn't complain, they finished. 
And as soon as he came to the loan agreement, they said, hey, hold on, we do not have the quorum. Yeah. And the deputy majority leader was very livid. But at the end of the day, you see, it goes to the point that even though they are there in their partisan colors, they should think of the national development agenda. Mm. Parliament's foremost responsibility is to pass laws to aid in the development of the country. And so even if the Supreme Court has said it is ABCD, some of them are not happy. This loan is not going to develop constituents that, passed, that voted for MPP. It's mm. going to cons every single part right. of the country. Interesting. And so I believe that the, mm. the various chief whips of the parties or the leadership should be able to reach a consensus on some of these things, and mm. then let's move the country forward. Uh, Ni, what do you say about that? And there have been times I have spoken here about the statistics. And our parliament is a place you have a lot of lazy people. Uh, they cannot be bothered. They get all the fat salaries. They get all the pecs that come with it. But... Often, they are not interested in the business of the house. So, even getting the ordinary quorum of, is it 92 people, has become difficult before. That a budget has had to be shelved because they can't find just that small number out of what? 275. So, what does it say about them in the first place that they can't get a quorum? You know, I remember that back in the law faculty when we went there some 20 years or so ago, at the beginning when Professor Kumado was our professor, I remember that this issue about attendance and numbers was discussed in one of the tutorial sessions. And I remember, if I remember correctly, that Professor Kumado had made a point that he had done some research about attendance and numbers and all of that. And at that time, I think there were 200 of them, right? Mm -hmm. And that the explanation that he had received was not so much that they, had, they were lazy, per se, uh, to borrow your word, but that he had discovered that there were so many things that happened in that building outside of the main chamber. Mm. That there were so many committee meetings, there were visits to places. The, the, the facts will show yes. that that is a lame excuse, whilst the, it can be germane in such, certain circumstances. Right. In sometimes, for example, the, the NPP wants to do some particular business. Mm -hmm. What is it that is being done in some committee that deprives them from marshalling their numbers into the house. And now, you see how they are livid and criticizing Ajua Safu and saying she is holding them to ransom. But you can't even count half of your members in the house to get a quorum. Yeah, so that's the point I'm making. An ordinary business. So the point is that that is the explanation that we have heard. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I don't know how it, it works, but I, have, I think that there should be a solution. Mm. The solution is that parliament is there to do a business. And when it works in plenary, Perhaps that is the main business. But that's not to take away the things they do in bits. Right. Nothing stops parliament. And I'm sure we'll have that discussion about it being a master of his own rules and all that. I have a, a position on that, you know, constitutionally, how it fits into the, into the judgment of the Supreme Court and all, and whether we have really created a new scenario at all. It's a very key point mm. that I would like to deal with at some point. Mm. But nothing prevents parliament from ensuring that whenever it has to do with core business, if you may call it so, where it's sitting in plenary and all of that, that it will not have any side business at the time. Nothing prevents Parliament from doing so. And the courts have said that consistently, from to four and Attorney General through 31st to whatever, all those cases to date, including the Abdullahi case. Mm. What happens in the day can do it. 
So they can say that, look, in order to ensure that our business rides and runs and all of that, we will not be doing these committee settings and whatever at this point, at that point, and all of that, so that we can ensure okay. that people are there. I think that that is what will help, yeah. you know, to, to, to check the problem. And also some discipline. Right. Some enforcement of attendance. And it's work. Speaker, they have speaker after speaker have complained about this attitude of the MPs, but they don't seem to get any uh, results. Unfortunately, they don't also apply the rules that could have that could lead to sanctioning some of them i don't know what we can do but osman let's hear you uh, briefly on this and this exposes something that we have been familiar with they are often without a quorum but they do the business they overlook they overlook um, when we were pursuing the rti uh, act bill i knew what was going on so a person who doesn't who doesn't want the rti bill they will do all the business without a quorum. Immediately it gets to the RTI uh, bill, then somebody will rise up and say there's no quorum. And by the law, once somebody says there's no quorum, they must stop. Is this the way this judgment should be used? In the way the minority is using it? Oh, Osman just left us. Okay, uh, interesting there. This is news file brought to you by Bank of Africa, MTA, NHS University, Robert & Sons, Wayleed Properties, CBG, Edlum Housing, Duraplast, and Rehoboth Properties. Now, let's get to how to implement the decision of the house. Uh, Bobby, before I get to Bobby, yes, Abdullah, just Abdullah. Um, so, does it look, are the prospects any bright for a review? Now that we are talking about possibly getting uh, some fundraising to help you. <laughs> uh, please unmute your mic. Sorry, thank you so much. Um, the funding will be a welcoming news uh, because I've, I've already put it out there that I'll, I'll need all the support that I can. Um, and indeed, it's not, it shouldn't just be limited to funding. It should also include um, the other material support and and the uh, advices that come from all of you. I, um, I, I have had few, um, some of our colleagues from both ends offering pieces of advice, giving me leads and uh, leads as to what they think I should look at for the possible review. Some even giving authorities um, as, um, to, to aid in the review application processes. Mm. And, I'm and, and by saying authorities, he's referring to research material. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Indeed, indeed. Indeed, and, and, and I'm really grateful for all who's showing that love and concern for Mother Ghana. I do not think it is a love for justice after life. Right. I take it as a love for Ghana. And, and I have also indicated I did have returns and few, I mean, I've rejected some few um, monies uh, donated by some other persons. And, and I had to do so because I, um, I take it that those who actually have the resources who can fund this, because it's an expensive venture, they are available and they should be able to do the funding. And not the ordinary Ghanaian who is already struggling for bread and butter. Um, I've had to return some few hundred thousands and two thousands here and there. And I am deeply grateful for those who, who, who have been doing that. Um, um, I don't take it lightly. I take it as a very good gesture for Mother Ghana, not give, for my personal give, give us a sneak peek um, into, into the prospects. Uh, let's say about, uh, about three, three uh, main grounds, there. potential grounds. Um, um, I'll come there. I thought you would allow me to. <laughs> I know the time is of the essence here, but I was hoping to um, exhaust your question first before I come to the ground. Um, but if you want to push me there, I, something, if we all, as the Supreme Court itself said, 
this is a, a very difficult area um, because, as they admitted, there are no precedents anywhere, and so they literally have to do a literal interpretation of the, of the Constitution to come up with a decision. In fact, if you check the decision itself on the interpretation of these matters, well, just about five pages. I mean, the rest were to discuss whether they had jurisdictions and other policy reasons and stuff. But the real issue was less than five pages, and that tells you how difficult it was for the Supreme Court to come up with this decision. And uh, unfortunately, because they met with these, uh, some of these um, um, criticisms. Um, I'm looking at, I'm looking at um, few um, areas um, to, to be interpreted. Um, give us at least you. about three of them. Um, okay, let me let me give you the, the few that I can. I'm, I'm looking at whether um, it is indeed um, looking at Article 295 and 104, whether um, it can easily be said that the Deputy Minister does not hold the same function as a um, Deputy Speaker, I mean, Deputy Speaker, um, if you properly construe Article 295 plus 2A and Article 104, um, whether those two offices cannot, could not be said to be um, one and the same in, the, um, in their functions. Um, we should remember that even though the Speaker the Supreme Court um, touched um, based on these areas, but they did not do any exhaustive analysis. And I'm hoping that I bring other nuances and other areas of this. And let's remember that the, um, the, the uh, what's it called? The rules of court already provide the statutory grounds based on which a party um, intending to file a review should come. Now, under some of these grounds, uh, what, what I'm looking at should come up. Um, and so I'm looking at where 2952A and 1042 can be construed to be one and the same, considering that um, the constitution itself provides that a holder of an office includes a substantive and the, the, the deputies and any person acting in that office. And so I'm hoping that when these two are jointly interpreted, the two can be, um, can be said to be one and the same. For which reason, then the deputy minister, the deputy speaker cannot be indeed counted and vote in, the, in, the, in, the, in any decision making in Parliament. Second, I'm also looking at um, the possibility of using the authority of a judgment. So here I'm looking at the true and proper interpretations of Article 1042, 295, and the principles enunciated in the judgment versus Attorney General of 2005-2006, where the Supreme Court had to import words into the Constitution. Now, let's remember that um, in, in the decision of the Supreme Attorney General, the Supreme Court is um, literally saying that because Article um, 104 does not, in fact, no part of the Constitution and details of any limitations on the deputy speakers. And so because there's no limitation on all, because there's no positive um, prohibition on the deputy minister, I mean, speakers, they are entitled to be counted and vote. Now I'm saying that if you read a judgment of um, a judgment where the speaker, where the Supreme Court itself had to import words into the constitution, specifically the prima facie phrase, what's important into the constitution when it does not exist, I'm looking at the possibility where this can be used by the Supreme Court to import into Article 104 or 102 to mean that um, the deputy speakers do not also have the right similar to um, um, what the speaker is also forbidden from um, in Article 104 Clause 2. So these are some of the things that I'm juggling up with. Um, of course, we should remember that these are all um, um, drafts that they are not final. And I'm hoping that 
um, the more research that I am able to do within this one month period, I'll be able to come up with something that will be more convincing mm. and that will be able to um, tilt the balance in favor of myself and indeed all the Ghanaians out there who believe that the Supreme Court will probably be able to change their minds. Okay. Um, if, uh, if you read um, 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 something, if you read the exposition by um, Professor Sire, he gives uh, some other solid analysis. And indeed, I've read my brother uh, Osman's position as well. But if you read um, Professor Sari's epistles, um, you will notice that he takes each of the grounds based on which the Supreme Court um, literally came to this conclusion that the speakers cannot be counted and cannot as a result vote. He takes each of these grounds and analyzes them and gives you the fallacies in some of the grounds, um, particularly when you look at the position, the position the Supreme Court took in respect of the non-voting right of, uh, of, of the deputy speaker uh, based on the fact that he's, uh, uh, he wears two hats. Okay. And really, right. this, it, mm. it, it, it gives you solid understanding as to why mm. the Supreme Court shouldn't have come to the conclusion that it came with, uh, because and you are setting, you are setting in your mind at this point that a review will carry the day, will overturn this I, um, decision. Something. My my objective has always been one: to be able to convince the Supreme Court to change their mind. Mm. I I have heard people saying that indeed seven zero is almost impossible um, to, to to change. I admit that it is a very difficult task. I am not oblivious of that at all. Um, however, I do not think that the Supreme Court the numbers. It is not a mathematical court. Okay. It's a court. All right. So hold on for me there. Hold on for me there. Uh, Osman. And, and I speak to Osman and come to you, Bobby, before I come back to the studio. Um, Bobby, I like you, when I come to you, I like you to tell us whether you think that um, the threshold required for a review uh, is not too difficult in these circumstances. The two grounds for which a review will be permitted, because a review is not at large. You know, um, so Osman, the, you have also written, and from the position you share, uh, which aligns with uh, Professor Kukwasari and others who disagree with this judgment, what do you see to be the potential grounds that can overturn this decision? Well, <clears throat> first of all, as for as for the grounds for review. You know, it's a very narrow corridor. And so they will first ask you what's the error of law. So definitely you need to demonstrate some error of law that, you know, that, that occasion miscarriage of justice. As for miscarriage of justice, you know, we all are the victims. The whole country is the victim if there's an error of law. But um, looking at it, I have already written that I think the Supreme Court didn't take into consideration some other words in Article 102, which has to do with the exception clauses or with what I call the saving clauses. You know, Article 102 is the only provision that mentions the idea of the presiding officer in Parliament not being part of a quorum. That's where it is mentioned. But we are asked to limit it to that provision. And I'm saying that there are some other provisions in Article 1042 that import that limitation into 104. Because, you see, if you look at that provision, 104, 1042 especially, which is talking about the um, 
the members of parliament voting, I think majority of parliament vote, members of parliament voting, determining a matter by vote, you will see that it started with the words except as otherwise provided in this constitution. And you see, and the except as otherwise is an exception for the quorum, is an exception for the number of members, is an exception for who is the, who will be a member of the quorum that is being provided for in Article 104. For me, I have made that argument so clearly. I tried my best to make it so clearly that they didn't take into consideration those saving clauses. And you can see that in other provisions where there are saving clauses in the judgment, they took very serious consideration of them and they arrived at a conclusion. For me, I don't, secondly, I don't think the context of the constitution, as they said, has warranted a departure from the provision that is linking speaker to a presiding officer. Because, you see, a deputy speaker or anybody presiding is acting in the set of a speaker. And there's a provision of the constitution that links, that says that any time we mention speaker in the constitution, we are referring to the person also presiding. But you see, the Supreme Court has come to the conclusion that no, that provision doesn't apply because in it, there is the word accept or unless the context otherwise requires. And they, they, they went through the whole provisions of um, 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 uh, Article 95, 96, 97, and came to the conclusion, Chapter 10, and came to the conclusion that no, that context does not, I mean, requires that they don't call or they don't refer to the deputy speaker who is acting as the speaker, as the speaker, which means that every limitation, privilege, or right that applies to the speaker will not apply to the deputy speaker when he's presiding. I think I disagree with that because I think that the context rather reveals otherwise, contrary, because you see, it is the principle of objectivity and impartiality that the context revealed that the framers of the constitution wants to project. If you look at it well, because you see, when the speaker becomes a speaker, he ceases to be a member of parliament. Now, if you look at, if we leave the speaker alone and go to the deputy speaker, you will find that if a minister or a deputy minister becomes a deputy speaker, and Article 81, he ceases to be a minister, which means that the constitution doesn't want the deputy speaker, just like the speaker, to be a member of the executive. So you can see, so why would the constitution prevent the deputy speaker from being a minister or deputy minister. It is because it wants to be, he wants, the constitution wants him to be impartial because he's, he would be presiding. And you see, to say that because there's an express provision relating to the speaker, excluding him from being, um, uh, from voting or from having original or casting vote, but no express limitation on the deputy speaker, I think that also is Erroneous. All right. Now, now, the, uh, if you can deal with this last one briefly for us, then we'll continue. Uh, you also impeach, you also, like others, impeach the Supreme Court, you know, uh, as it were, invoking its jurisdiction to strike down Order 109 of the uh, Standing Orders of Parliament as being null, uh, void, and of no effect. How so? Yes, you see, um, 
First of all, I made, I expressed concerns about the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court not properly being invoked in this matter. Because, you see, we have looked at several cases and they have, we have realized that even where the original jurisdiction is invoked in respect of interpreting some provision of the Constitution, if the provision of a Constitution comes up for interpretation which is not stated in the original rate, they decline interpretation of that particular, and I have cited different, several cases, but in this case, you can see that Justice Abdullah never brought in any provision of law saying that it is inconsistent with any provision of the Constitution before the Supreme Court. Secondly, secondly, you could see that the interpretation of the Supreme Court is filling up a gap because they admit that there has not been any provision that limits the deputy speaker from being part of a quorum or from voting. So, the same way, there's no provision giving him that right to count himself. There's no express provision anywhere that says that the speaker, the speaker should be part of a quorum or should have an original vote. And so, we take it that this is a matter the Constitution hasn't provided for. Mm. Okay. And uh, if the Constitution hasn't provided for it, I think the best place is the residual powers of Parliament, which mm. is in 298. Okay. And so the Constitution confers on Parliament residual powers to deal with matters that it doesn't provide for. The Constitution, the Supreme Court has no jurisdiction to okay. fill in those gaps. That's All right. my point. All right. Um, I think maybe eventually I'll ask you guys to uh, maybe in some uh, 30 you know, seconds or one minute uh, tell me your view of whether or not it's not a good guide to look at the 1957 um, and then look at the Parliament Act, uh, Section 14 also, as a guide as to what was intended, that in fact a Deputy Speaker was intended to be able to exercise his vote, even when he was presiding or whoever was presiding. Now, uh, Bobby, does it not look like the grounds as they are, an attempt to enter the eye of a needle? Hello, Bobby. Hello, can yes. you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, I would have to agree with you. It looks like, to be frank, like a 0.1% chance. You see, the reason mostly being that with a review, unless in exceptional circumstances, it is the same panel, the seven original panel is retained and two members are added. And so you're, you are starting from a position where you have seven against two. I mean, mat I know, not like mathematically, but at the back of your mind, the two are the ones that are coming in with fresh mind. And so the ease with which you can convince them, it's, it's, it's let's say, on an equal 50-50. But with the seven, they already have given you their conclusion, and it was unanimous. And so it's like you're moving them from zero to 50. It's tougher. And that is a fact we must admit. More so when the Supreme Court had indicated that even if their decision was erroneous, you cannot come and argue the same points of law before them on, on, on review. And let me give you this interesting, you know the NIB case, where the Supreme Court held that the, 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 the fact that the plaintiff did not endorse the rate with an address rendered the, the, the whole rate analogy. Right. You know there was an application for review 
Right. That time, Justice Amegache was the lawyer. Mm -hmm. And he argued it. Justice Atuguba made a very interesting statement. He said that on second thoughts, and I'm paraphrasing, he agrees that the decision may have been erroneous. However, because of the limited circumstances that they can exercise their review jurisdiction, he would decline the application for review hmm. with the hope that if similar facts come before the Supreme Court in, by way of a fresh rate, the Supreme Court would depart from that previous decision. And so, and, and Justice Dateba has given in numerous cases this particular instance or this particular ambit where they say, okay, our decision may have been erroneous, but the, the ambit of a review is so tiny that we would not use it as another appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court because there's no appellate jurisdiction. And so even though it's the, you, you will be able to let them see the error in their decision, it will be difficult to argue fresh points of law or error apparent on the face of law. From what Abdullah said about the basis for his review application, he's not introducing any new law. He's saying that Justice Kulendi and his colleagues misinterpreted and misapplied the law. So you are not saying that there's a new law that was not brought to the attention. All that you are saying is that there may have been misinterpretation of it. And so you are not arguing any fresh error of law, but saying that you disagree with their conclusion. And they may see it as you trying to invoke an appellate jurisdiction, which they do not have. You are re-arguing so, your case. You are redoing your case. So I, and I know you've not asked, I do not agree with the conclusions of the courts on this. I do not. For, for various reasons, most of which have been argued by my brother Osman. And if I may add just briefly, that if you look at the, 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 the part of the decision that was stated, that there is no way the framers would have intended that a member of parliament would be denied a right to vote for his constituency. Under no circumstances should any standing orders be interpreted to have that effect. You ask yourself what happens to the, to the provisions in the standing orders that gives parliament the right to sanction and suspend a member from sitting by the, if he is found guilty of, of contempt of parliament. So that that member who, is, who has been suspended, for instance, cannot vote. I think there's five suspens, five sittings or seven sitters. And so why didn't the Supreme Court go to the extent of striking out those provisions and the standing orders too? Could, could, can that Court. not be said to be an exception? Yes, but in that same way where the standing orders gave a clear provision, that seems to take away a right of the member to vote under certain circumstances. Because, of, because of a conduct that is prohibited? Yes. So why are we not saying that that same powers of parliament to pass the standing orders, where they have expressly... Remember, that standing order leaves no room for ambiguity. There's mm. no ambiguity in that order. That states clearly that if you are presiding, you do not have a right to vote. It is stated very clearly with no ambiguity. So why are we saying in one aspect, no, we will not agree because it takes away the right of the member to represent his people. But that same way, why wouldn't, the, why wouldn't Parliament say, listen, the person may have committed a crime. We will not allow him to partake in parliamentary debates. But when it comes to voting, he can come and vote. 
because he's representing his people. Mm. He, leaves, he leaves a lot of room for inconsistency. Interesting. 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 Uh, thank you, Bobby Benson. And now let me come to uh, Mia Declerc. And the, the Supreme Court, by the law, uh, will not review a decision unless on two grounds that there is an, an exceptional circumstance which has resulted in miscarriage of justice. So the circumstance must be exceptional, number one, and two, it must have resulted in miscarriage of justice. You need to show that. Or number two, that after the decision, you have discovered a new and important, it must not only be new, but it must be an important matter or evidence which after the exercise of due diligence was not within your knowledge or could not have been produced by you at the time the decision was given. What a tall order. Yes. Me. Absolutely. It's a tall order because that is what it is. <laughs> the basis of that is what um, a Latinate expression, interest republicae, puts it finicity on. That you, it is, you love your Latin. Yeah. <laughs> that's in the interest of the republic, that litigation must come to an end. That's right. At some point. And that we can see the difficulty with the Supreme Court when it exercises its original jurisdiction. That can be some sort of a challenge to that principle. Because then, generally, if the case goes through a number of courts, is on appeal, high courts, blah, blah, name it and counts, you think that, look, it must come to an end at some point. But with the constitutional interpretation, we've decided that then we can have some sort of a review, not just with constitutional review, but I'm saying that in that arena, that's what you get. And that that review, considered by as many as five people at a minimum, in this particular case, seven people who have gone through whatever it is they have considered, we think that you must have a good basis. To, to seek a review of it, which is that you get a second bite of the cherry. So it is a difficult exercise. Nobody can deny that. Exceptional circumstances. You have to even convince the court that these things that I consider exceptional should be exceptional to you. And in addition to that, that, that you, you, you sitting there listening to me was involved in a miscarriage of justice. I mean, as, as one leg. And also a new important matter. And it happens for emphasizes. I'll just look at Republic versus High Court general jurisdiction case in 2020. Where the court, I think it was Chief Justice himself, mm. was very clear, citing previous authorities, that the Supreme Court will not permit a review to be a rehearing of the matter. When they were distinguishing between an appeal and a review. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court has done that consistently. If you're on appeal, it is a rehearing. We can decide to look at the record. In a review, we can look at the record only when those exceptional circumstances arise. Otherwise, you must show us these two things. And I'm sure that Alaji knows that. Osman knows that. Everybody else there knows it. It's part of our training. We know it. And it is the rules by which we play. At this stage, if Alaji can show us those ex exceptional circumstances and miscarriage of justice, discovery of new material and all of that, then I think that the Supreme Court should hear him. I am not worried about whether he will end up with a 7-2 or, a, I mean, a 9-2 or 7-2, right? Because you had two more, so get yeah. a 9. Mm. And, and 7-2 or that you get an 8-1 or you get one. That is not my worry. And so I will not say don't go simply because 7 have already done it. His challenge at this time is to convince himself 
within the period that he has, is it a month or so? Yeah, 30 days. 30 days. To, to, to convince the court that he can find these. If he cannot, so be it. This is the state of the law. And this the door is, is shut. Yeah, the door will be shut. But look, I think that we should refer, if we have better minds to a certain provision. You know, a lot of the time I hear this, I give this point being made that look, the Supreme Court did not have uh, some um, old decision to go by or that there was no guide on them. But that is why it is the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. That is the reason. It is the Supreme Court, actually. But you know, as a lawyer, it's difficult when you're arguing and you can't have precedent to fall on. Absolutely. I've done one such case recently, and it's difficult. I, but I, absolutely. You must, you must engineer the new argument. I love that, actually. Mm. I prefer that. Mm. A lot of the time, the so-called precedent do not deal with the issue the way you are bringing it before the court. Right. Times have changed. I've, you've had so many discussions. People have talked, talked about standing. People have talked about the participation of parliament in this matter. People have talked about the political question doctrine as it applies. People have spoken about the standing orders. People have questioned why the attorney general, yes. who represents and is a political appointee, is now appearing on behalf of parliament, which is a different arm of Sort of appearing on behalf of the people yes. who are coming to the court against... Because he's an advisor to the, to the executive. Not to, not to parliament, and that becomes a matter. And then uh, people questioning and all that. Look, the political question doctrine in particular, which is a very key discussion in this, has featured in the Supreme Court judgments of this country as far as judicial review is concerned on so many bases. Yes, in Tufan Attorney General Sowa read the judgment. He never used the expression political question. So I'll leave that, even though he did a lot of analysis that formed the basis. In, if you go in simple terms, what is political questioning doctrine? Okay. So as I was saying, 20 years ago, when we were all reading these matters, we saw these cases and these references and all of that. Even Baker and Carl is on the, um, at, at the law faculty Legon. Baker and Carl is part of the, the cases on the course outline. We went through it and touched on it. But I must tell you, that it is in taking, studying for and taking the New York bar exam that I really came to appreciate some of these things. And I, Kwesi Prempe in particular, HKP, I've known him for over 20 years, an extremely bright fellow. I, I, I'll set him apart, tell you the truth. He says this judgment yes. is fidelity to, to the, the text, text and yes. structure of the Constitution. I agree with him. Even though he has some issues and calls it messy, including the Attorney General representing as it were, the other side. I'd like to say quickly mm. that the Attorney General representing the other side is not a problem in the eyes of the current law. What he is saying sounds more like a recommendation to me. The point is that can you fault the, uh, uh, the fact that this is what happened? Is he saying that he faults? That the Supreme Court has had, question, had, had a cause to say that it's not in every situation that the Attorney General can competently yes. represent yes. an institution yes. of state. I agree. Yes. So because Attorney General, be, what, what was because the Attorney General's, you know, as it were, position yes. may or will conflict with that entity. Something. Mm. Don't misunderstand me. Right. I agree with Kwesi Prempe's point. I am saying that he cannot tell me that for that reason, this judgment is defective. Okay. That's the point I'm making. He doesn't say that. Okay. I am saying that the structurally I agree with him a thousand percent mm. that we have an attorney general who is a member of the executive, clearly a legal advisor to the president, etc., representing the matter featuring parliament. It's a place we should look at. It makes a lot of sense to me. But I'm saying that it is on that basis, we cannot say that because of that, this judgment has been rendered nuggetary. 
I, I hope you get the, the point I'm trying to establish. That it does not become laboratory only for that purpose. That is, it makes a lot of sense to say that in matters like this, perhaps mm. we should look at somebody else doing the representation, all of that. Political question doctrine. Mm. The political question doctrine, as I have understood it, you <laughs> have come to understand it, is quite simple. It says that there are times when, and don't forget, it's an American constitutional development. All right. That's what we need to understand. Mm. It is a concept in American constitutional yeah. law. So it says there are times when what? They are saying that generally there are situations where, for example, final judicial authority or final authority is given to a certain body, a certain other institution other than the judiciary to make a determination on an issue. When that arises, because that person has been given that power, or that organ of government has been given that power, you must leave that organ to make the final determination on that particular matter. Mm. That is what it is. In fact, they have a whole line of cases that we keep referring to Baker and Carr because Baker and Carr gave, gave us about six scenarios. And we have our Supreme Court in uh, J.H. Mensah versus Attorney General, our Supreme Court in the case of, uh, uh, um, what do you call it, the, the MPP versus Attorney General, 31st December in particular, all of that, dealt with those matters at length. They all talked about that American concept which is creeping into Ghanaian law. Mm. The position has been taken, and I don't know if it will waste your time. If it will not waste your time, uh, if you will permit me, I would like to just read a small portion on Justice Aqua. Aqua's comment on the political, uh, uh, you know, doctrine uh, so, question. So in, 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 in the very common way, in a very many common have way, said that, many have said that yes. the political uh, question doctrine yes. simply means, yes. or is a doctrine that refers to the idea that an issue is so politically charged no. that the courts, which are typically viewed as a political branch of government, the apolitical branch of government, should not hear the issue when it comes before them. So here it is. Mm. I'll give you the six bases. Mm. Okay. One, textually demonstrable constitutional commitment of the issue to a coordinate political department. Mm -hmm. That's one. Two, don't interfere in someone because, because you are all arms of government. Yes, because the constitution. Mm. You are not saying that because you are all arms of government. You are saying okay. that the constitution has given that power to another organ of okay. government. Okay. The political question has arisen so many times. For example, in the U.S., the president has the authority with respect to some foreign policy matters and all of that. When he takes a decision on that score, should the court interfere or not? We've had some exceptions to which, with respect to some citizenship mm. of, a, of, a, of an American born in Israel and whether for that reason, all those things. I don't want to get too much into that, but just so people understand. The first one is that the Constitution itself, which is supreme, says that when it comes to this matter, this organ, the executive or the legislature, is the final authority. Mm. So the, that part of power has already been given. Okay. Or, two, there's a lack of judicially discoverable and manageable standards for resolving it. And recently, they've been talking about gerrymandering mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah. That when they are coming forward, can we have a judicially manageable basis to make a determination with respect to new borders and drawing them and all of that? And if they don't think so, then they will leave that to the Congress or so. So, so to, to the question, to the question. But in Ghana, to the question, do you see any implications yes. for the future of the parliament and our governance yes. that this decision brings up? We see a lot in this. And just to close that, mm. so in Ghana, largely, 
constitutional assignment. The Supreme Court has said, and perhaps you don't have time, so I'll leave it, okay. that the political question doctrine is not something uh, uh, that we take hook, line, and sinker. Right. All right? Right. And, and, and all the other. Mm. Something. Again, just give me two minutes. Go ahead. There's this important thing that we need to understand. This point is that, look, we are running a state. We have our rules. We have a history, whether we like it or not. We came from somewhere. We all know that we were colonized by the British, correct? We know that the British have their rules. There, I've heard a lot of debates, even from some members of parliament, saying, for example, that the British parliament does this, that, that. Jack, let's understand where we stand. Today, even today, you know that currently the British have a Supreme Court. They didn't used to have one. It was the House of Lords. Right. Since the 1st of October 2009, they have instituted a Supreme Court. That has not changed the understanding of judicial review when the court is pronouncing something unconstitutional. They say clearly that the Supreme Court of the UK cannot declare primary legislation as unconstitutional. Why? It is based on a certain belief in what? Parliamentary sovereignty. Cross over to the United States of America, who were also colonized by the British. They say that the court, as the final arbiter, can declare these matters unconstitutional. However, in doing so, they make a certain limitation based on their understanding of separation of powers mm -hmm. by saying that they have a political question doctrine in itself struggling to come to terms. That says that when that final authority or some other basis exists, that the court will not do that thing. And yet they still allow the court to make that pronouncement mm. that is for that person. I can still sue you. Okay. That's if I can't go to court. Right. The court can make the pronouncement that, oh, in this instance, it belongs there. Mm. But, we had that this, uh, 1957 constitution bar battles. You remember Laudan number two mm -hmm. against Attorney General mm. um, and, and all that. That question came up. The, Supreme, the court itself in Ghana said that there was some parliamentary sovereignty that they could not strike as own act. <laughs> in worry against the Foriata uh, at that time, an, an act was struck down as invalid. But 1960 was tighter. And that is where we had our seminal Riyakuto case. And look, if we don't look at the, the background to these matters, we get lost in the... So what are the implications we can see? All right, I guess you want me to end the, 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 the historical analysis. Mm, yeah. So I'll mm. come to the implications that we can see. The implication we can see is that Ghana has charted its own course. We have been charting this course for a very long time. We have taken the position that because once upon a time, we could even have a PDA passed by parliament where in somebody's satisfaction, they can arrest you, as the Supreme Court said in that time, prior to you committing the act, based on some problems that you could cause us, it went to court. Put you in jail without uh, trial. trial. The Attorney General at that time, Geoffrey Bing, who is from the UK, argued parliamentary sovereignty. J.B. Dankwa... The judgment refers to this. J.B. Dankwa, yes. Yeah. Mm. J.B. Dankwa argued the other side. J.B. Dankwa lost. But the J.B. Dankwa position became the position of Ghana starting from 1969, where we wanted to be clear that the final arbiter is the Supreme Court, and that the, the court can deal with these matters. Of course, the Constitution is supreme. And we have held on to that position to, to date. So I've, I, we don't do too much history. Mm. What I see is that we are clear in our minds at this time through this judgment mm. that the final arbiter, whichever way you look at it, is the court. Okay. That the court can make a, whatever parliament does, it can do. Okay. There's this argument about some closed book and mm. all of that. Yeah. They say that what, what Sowa said mm. was that as long as what parliament has done is in conformity with Article 91 at that time, mm. or that is in conformity with the Constitution today, it's a closed book. Okay. But if it doesn't follow, that will not happen. That's so correct. today, we have taken a position in Ghana, and it's clear that when there's a dispute, where there's a parliamentary action, where there's an act, where there are standing orders, whatever, 
and it is it flies in the face of the constitution of the republic of ghana the courts are in the position there's no political question limitation all right to declare that this will happen mm. but what we have seen is that on the political front what is happening in parliament is what will happen mm. what is the way out we have to learn to live with each other we have to now learn consensus building something we have never done it's a very divided political front in parliament it has always been for the first time the numbers are forcing us to find a way to work together to find middle ground to make peace with each other and to all of that the, the, the anger will die down i think what is happening will die down somebody's taking uh, soccer mm. in the fact that they won a decision and yet now the other side seems to be the one who is using it for their own benefit and all of that i think calm heads to prevail the leadership there should be made to come together we must sit and we are now forced whether we like it or not to talk to each other it's like two bad friends who are two talented members of a football team who need to rely on each mm. other okay and that is the scenario um, we have yeah, yeah so um i i i'm asking you guys briefly to tell us what you think are the implications for the parliament in the implementation of the decision um the one of the deputy speakers um, first deputy speaker joe Oseusu, has said that he will not even attempt to step down from his seat to cast his vote because that is what brought the fight the last time he will remain in his seat and simply be counted for the quorum and proceed to vote when it's time for voting um how is that going to be easy to implement but first what do you say whether or not section 14 of the parliament act and as i said earlier which repeats if you like the 1957 provision what does that say to you because in that provision it says a deputy speaker or any other who is presiding has an original vote he does not only have a casting vote. Bobby, uh, le let me have a lie first. Very briefly, in one minute. Um, Samson, um, what we have to remember is that we, we have carved up this sort of system for ourselves where we seek to project some amount of impartiality going forward. This is what we have sought to do with our lives in Parliament. Mm. Um, if you check the standing orders of Parliament, it took away the entire uh, right of the deputy speaker from having an original vote. Yeah, so the standing, course, orders, again, sadly, the standing orders cannot conflict the parliamentary act. The parliamentary act. I, I agree. Mm. Yeah, subsidiary, I agree. Right. So, um, so clearly from from that to anger, from those to anger. Now, something let's remember that the standing orders were not even, was not, um, even though it being a subsidiary legislation, was not approved by, by Parliament through the usual um, provisions under Article um, 11. Okay. And um, this standing orders literally came um, to live with us without having to go through the, all the right processes. So it's quite difficult to even call it a law, even though it is. They have tabled. They have tabled the new one that they are seeking to approve to become the standing orders. And that should be. That, that can probably be called a law. Um, if, if, if you want to. If you yeah. Want so to I want your law. direct statement on section 14 of the Parliament Act, which says a deputy speaker or anyone presiding has the right to vote. 
original now, votes. Now, that is directly in conformity with what the Supreme Court has said. However, if you if um, um, it is in conflict with what the standing orders had put out, because the standing orders have taken that right away. Now, if no, you but you just that, you just said you just said yes. by the hierarchy of laws in Article 11, yes. the standing orders cannot deviate from Even the act and still remain good, and still remain good law. Has more challenges, as I've said earlier. Right. It didn't go through the usual processes of passing it, and so it has its own challenges with that. So and that's a messy that, confusion. Yeah. So my point is that, um, in addition to the confusion it's creating. This one, um, this provision is clearly indirect, uh, even though it was not before the Supreme Court, and so they clearly did not have their minds to read. Um, it is in conformity with the, um, the decision in Justice Ablen and Attorney General. However, my point, um, um, having said that, what I'm pointing point out is this. The Constitution itself is being silent on all these matters. My, my, um, if, if at the time I was giving you the grounds that I was, um, I'll be advancing for a review, having uh, indicated the already um, statutory um, um, grounds, you'll notice that matters the Constitution hasn't said anything, the Constitution hasn't said anything at all about whether or not the deputy speakers can vote or not vote. So if, if, but for this decision, what you'll be confronted with is whether the Supreme Court would have the right to pronounce and would um, be confronted with a pronunciation on this issue of the constitutionality or otherwise of um, section 14 of the constitution because the constitution doesn't say anything about it and my position has been that where the constitution does not expressly sanction a particular um, conduct or does not prescribe it Taking into consideration all other forms of all other provisions in the Constitution, one should be able to determine the line that the Constitution would want all of us to move. Okay. And in doing so, mm. we may have to be we may have to ask ourselves that salient questions. Mm. What were the previous constitutions saying? Okay. I mean, what did they say right. regarding that area? All right. Because Thank you. Thank you. Let me go to Bobby. And Bobby, within one minute, I'm holding you to it. Within one minute, what do you say? about whether or not there is guidance from the 1957 constitution uh, uh article uh, 40 of that and also section 14 of the parliament act uh which as far as i know remains good law in ghana and it says that the speaker shall have neither an original nor a casting vote this is the same thing that was said in that constitution but any other person presiding, including a deputy speaker, shall have an original vote, but no casting vote. If this is I, still law, how can you disagree with the Supreme Court? I think that whether it is still law is even arguable. The reason for me saying that is that, that I believe that Act of Parliament was passed in the 1965. That's right which was based on the, constitu the constitution that you read, the 1957 constitution. Now we have the current standing orders, which were based on the 1992 constitution. Mm -hmm. Now you ask yourself whether or not the provision in the 1957 constitution have been carried forward in its terms as it was in the 1957 constitution into the 1992 constitution. I do not think it is the same word for word. Should we not Second, rather be asking ourselves whether or not that law that we have just referred to, that act, remains law after uh, Justice VCRAC crap did his work on it. 
Yes, I will not doubt that it doesn't remain law, but whether or not if there are provisions in there that conflict with the standing orders, mm. what will be the interpretation and application? And justice, and you have rightly said, as it stands now, we do not know the character of the standing orders, whether they should be treated as subsidiary legislation, whether they should be treated as act of parliament properly so-called. Mm. If they are treated as act of parliament, does it mean that if they contain it being a latter in time law, if it contains provisions that conflict with the 1965 one, whether by the rules of interpretation, it will be deemed that the framers of this latter law intended to uh, uh, repeal any other provision in any other law that conflicts it. So I don't think that it's, it's set in stone that automatically it's binding on it. So that is, that is my position. Depending on how you argue it, it could be good law or it could be repealed by the standing orders, depending on the nature of the character that you give to the standing orders. Interesting. Interesting. Um, on, on that matter, I, I go to uh, Isana Nankuma's uh, Facebook wall and he made this post. He said, uh, the Statute Law Review Commission, Commissioner VCRC Crab, uh, was asked to review existing laws and bring them into accord with the Constitution. Parliament passed his revisions and the Supreme Court upheld his revisions to be law. But when it came to Section 14 of Act 300, that's the law we are referring to, the Commission did no review. The Commissioner did no review. He merely expressed an opinion in footnotes 25. That section 14 has been superseded by Article 104. But what did that mean? Implied repeal? But is Article 104 really at variance with section 14.2 of Act 300? Although the Supreme Court did not appear to have considered this section, their interpretation of Article 104 actually aligns the article with the pre-existing Section 14 of Act 300. That would mean that Section 14 remains good law and was never repealed, at least not by the Constitution. Osman, what do you say? Uh, <clears throat> first of all, let me, before I get to this question, let me say that the political question we are discussing, I don't think is much of an issue. I don't think anybody is saying that the uh, Supreme Court doesn't have the authority to, to, to strike down a law that is inconsistent with the Constitution. What is actually in dispute? Many people have said that. Else. Many people have said that. You have not listened to some of the NDC guys. Very well. Yes. Very well. In but, fact, initially, me, initially, even a lawyer among the uh, minority group Harun Ibrisu himself has said he was shocked that they were trying to interfere or invade uh, the space of uh, parliament. And what did you hear the speaker also say? Right, yes, so go ahead. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that mm. I don't think they are not saying parliament is above the constitution. They are just saying that that law struck down is not inconsistent with the, any provision of the constitution. That's how I understand it. It is the Supreme Court that has the power to say it is consistent or not. It has said it is inconsistent. And to that yeah, effect, that, it uses the power given it by the Constitution to remove it as law. Yes, yeah, so, so, so let's, let's leave it at that. But I'm trying to say that the political question is actually not... Um, right. But if we, if we can, let me read um, United for you. Yes, and, 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 and forgive me, but you have a minute. Okay. 
Um, so then let me use my minutes. Now come, uh, let, me, let me address the question first. Um, Section 14 of the Parliament Act of 1965. We all know that Article 11.6 is requiring that we construe existing law. And existing law is the Act. The Act is an existing law. We should construe it with all the qualifications and necessary adaptations to bring it to conformity with the 1992 Constitution. So it means that if we, 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 we are to apply that provision, we should first get the Supreme Court to construe it, to bring it in conformity with the 1992 Constitution. But that as me, if we are going to rely on that act, then the validity that they declare, the validity that they declare for the decision of parliament approving the budget will fall. You know why? Because let's go if you go back to section 13 of that act, you will find that the, the presiding officer. Any person presiding in parliament is excluded from forum. So it's not only about section 14. Let's go to section 13 of that act, which talks about mm. forum. Mm. And because, you see, this whole decision All right. revolves mm. forum and not voting, actually. Mm. So he counted himself that if there's no quorum, then they can't be voting. Can yeah. they? So, But section 13 of that act says this, the, the deputy speaker or any person presiding should not be part of the quorum. Okay, okay. So, 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 so now, now, very final, very finally, very finally, in twenty seconds, if there is there is an attempt to stop the implementation of this decision in Parliament, what will happen? Well, it can only be seen as a consequence of. Um, a judgment that probably uh, was not pro uh, properly, I mean, looked into. You see, we can't see this. The question we should ask ourselves is, whatever they are doing to forestall proceedings or progress in Parliament, is it in conformity with a decision or not? If it is in conformity with a decision, then it is a consequence of a bad decision. Okay, thank you. We have uh, Bobby, Bobby, same to you. If, because we have heard some of the members of parliament say, on the opposition side say, that they are masters of their own uh, procedure. And so, as far as they are concerned, they haven't seen any ruling, so to speak, or decision. Um, if somebody attempts to stop a deputy speaker from doing what the court says he is allowed to do, what will happen? Listen, I, I, I doubt any of the minority members will be bold enough to physically stop. I mean, that would be the height of disrespect to the rule of law. Um, we, they were not happy that the majority decided on their own to overturn the decision of uh, Speaker Babin. Um, mm. They should not take the law into their own hands. The, the Constitution said if they want, they can amend the standing orders. I think that what they can do is to form a consensus, like uh, Robert said, sit down, look at how they can move the agenda of developing the country through parliament as, as an arm of government through, and stop, uh, and stop the, you know, these kind of threats. It cannot happen. We are not in, 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 if we are in a democratic regime, we have a constitution that gives the power to interpret 
the constitution to the supreme court if they are not happy they can go back to the drawing table and come if anybody attempts to do that i believe that the conduct of the person the, the constitution says that any person who dis, they, uh, disobeys the orders of the supreme court there's no, I think it's high high crime or high treason. Some, high crime, like high crime. crime. Yes. So so the, and it's the, liable. It's liable to imprisonment for ten years. Yes. Mm. And and I think that anybody who does that, the attorney general should take that step and prosecute the person. I mean, okay. we may not disagree completely with the with the ruling of the Supreme Court, mm. but it doesn't mean we should take the law into our. So own. if you did that, it would be high crime, and you'd be liable to imprisonment not exceeding ten years without the option of a fine, and you will then not be eligible for election or for appointment to any public office for ten years, beginning with the date of the expiration of the term of imprisonment. There it is. Yes. In addition uh, to potential yes, so, elements, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Abdullah, what do you say about that? Uh, please unmute. Oh, for with Bobby on this, and I, I think that, um, as I have been indicating, all of us must find a way to forge um, ahead in, in unison, because really, whatever the case may be, mm. this is a benefit of the Supreme Court. Until, until a review um, changes anything, this is what we have to live with. And we have to find a way to collectively move together as a nation. All right. Only we can, we can make progress. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, gentlemen. Uh, Ni Adeklag will be with us for the second part of uh, this uh, discussion, looking at matters of the economy. And if you know Ni too well, uh, very well, um, when we say he's an author, he has authored even in the area of corporate governance. Uh, so let's see what ideas he will have for us to try to see if uh, it will be listened to to lessen our bedding in these difficult times. My guests have been uh, Robert Nia Declared, uh, who is lawyer and author. Uh, Bobby Banson is lawyer and also teaches the law at the Ghana School of Law. Um, Justice Abdullah is lawyer and lecturer, UPSA uh, Law School, and Osman Al-Hassan is a lawyer, has uh, authored an article. Uh, he does that frequently uh, to criticize judgments when he finds that they do not uh, align with uh, what he perceives to be the right position. This show is brought to you by Bank of Africa, strong as a group and close as a partner, MTN everywhere you go, Ashasi University, educating ethical and entrepreneurial leaders for Africa, Robert and Sons, Optical Services, your comprehensive eye care service provider for 31 years. We lead properties, home is where one starts. CBG, we stand with you. Edlum Housing, where spacious homes cost less. Juroplas, where Juroplas goes, water flows. And Rehoboth Properties, quality housing, for all. We'll be right back. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 